Hi, I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today I'll be speaking with David W. Orr, the professor of practice at Arizona State University and the Paul Sears Distinguished Professor of Environmental Studies and Politics Emeritus at Oberlin College. He is the editor of the new book, Democracy in a Hotter Time, just out from MIT Press, which includes contributions from the likes of science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson and Diet for a Small Planet author Francis Moore LePay. David is also the author of eight other books, including Design on the Edge, Earth in Mind, and Ecological Literacy. Speaking with David, there's little wonder why he's a beloved educator who has been awarded nine honorary degrees and a dozen other awards. David is a true whole earth thinker and an embodiment of the kind of thinking we've aimed to bring forward throughout the three and a half years of making at a distance. David stands out to me not only for his long view vision, but for his deep understanding of how governance, ecology, and the climate crisis are all intertwined. And while he's without a doubt a serious scholar, refreshingly, as you'll hear, he does not take himself too seriously. Before we get into it, I'd first like to mention that we've launched a new membership program at The Slowdown, which at just $100 a year provides access to our slate of new member-only newsletters, in-depth stories, immersive interviews, and more. If you'd like to join, go to slowdown.tv slash subscribe. That's slowdown.tv slash subscribe. And now here's my conversation with David. Hi, David. Welcome to At A Distance. Well, Spencer, thank you for having me. First, I should say outright that I, I could not think of a more timely subject or title for your book, Democracy in a Hotter Time. This is something that's been on my mind for years now and that I can't really understand why it's been so overlooked. So it was nice to see a book about the subject finally come out at last. Could you lay out for the listeners these dual crises, the democracy under threat and climate crisis and the ways in which they link and are intertwined? I mean, neither is as stable as I think we've all thought. Well, sure. I I think the the book started uh, several years ago. I was teaching it over in college in 2017. We did a conference on the state of American democracy. The acronym is SAD, (laughs) S-A-D. And the point of the the gathering is three days. It started off with Jane Mayer from New Yorker and ended with William Barber three days later, the the great preacher. We were trying to get at how did we get to the election of 2016? What happened? And then we published out of that a book called uh, Democracy Unchained from New Press. And we had planned 14 events uh, across the country uh, starting at the National Cathedral on March 20, 2020. And the cathedral staff called us in our weekly call about two weeks from the event and said, hey, we've got great news and we got bad news. And the great news is we're going to have a standing room only crowd. Main nave and both wings will be filled. Bad news is we'll have to cancel. We set about to do online events. We did 11 online events, uh, drew an audience, I think, of about a million people, maybe a bit more and included David Brooks, Jill Lepore from Harvard. I mean, it was an all-star crowd. The next phase of the work, we decided to focus on democracy and climate. 
and our assumptions are that uh, started off basically democracy is worth fighting for. Uh, for all of its flaws, it's the only system of governance that uh, ought to and can protect human dignity and all the things that we really value. Uh, Churchill's in that famous and overused comment saying it was a worst form of government except for all the others that had ever been tried. Uh, I don't quite subscribe to that, but that, that starts off the democracy. What we have came down over years of history as a gift. A lot of people died for it and sacrificed for it. So here we are. Is it easy to do? No. Democracy is really tough. It requires uh, that hardest of all things, forbearance uh, and the capacity to listen and a bit of uh, humility along the way to listen to other people and hear other viewpoints. The climate comes at us uh, with a lot of warnings. Savanti Arrhenius, the great uh, Swedish scientist, predicted kind of where we'd be if we burned as much carbon as we have. He was ballpark accurate. As a Swede, he thought it was a good thing to warm up the, <laughs> the earth a bit. But we now have a series of warnings, like a pixel Pixels accumulated in a picture, the, the view gets sharper and sharper with every scientific report. So our first assumption is that democracy, for all of its worth, won't survive climate change. The climate change sooner or later will accumulate so many problems and rising sea levels and droughts and all of those things end up with social stresses and economic traumas and so forth. Democracy won't survive that. Governance generally may not survive it. The second assumption we make is that if we're going to solve the climate or manage the climate crisis, it has to be through democracy. We have to engage the public and tap into this reservoir of creativity and uh, ingenuity, and I think even patriotism that exists in the public realm. And the third assumption is that that democracy isn't uh, what we have now. And so thinking about the history of this and collapsing this into a uh, short description, Democracy 1.0 was all the kinds of uh, governance that had ever been tried in tribal systems and so forth, but around the world up through the Iroquois or Haudenosaunee uh, Confederacy. Uh, democracy 2.0 starts in Greece. Greek democracy, was it perfect? No, not at all. Slavery and so forth, I mean, there are all kinds of problems. What you might call 3.0 begins in Philadelphia, the culmination of the Enlightenment with Tom Jefferson sitting uh, in that Philadelphia hotel room and begins to pen uh, the Declaration of Independence. And Lincoln drew on that as the core principle of American democracy. 4.0 has yet to be invented, but each of the preceding kinds of democracy uh, required an extension of the constituency from tribal uh, level to the Greek level to the democracy 3.0. And every time we improve democracy, we widen uh, that thing called we the people, the constituency for democracy. So in the beginning, a document written by slave owners uh, had to reckon with slavery. And then uh, democracy uh, 4.0 has to reckon with all these people and let me put the word beans out there, left out. So other species, natural systems, and future generations. And so this is going to be a tough extension because democracy 4.0 has to reckon with the sins of 3.0. We built this enormous capitalist enterprise globally, but we did it on the backs of a lot of people. Colonialism was an artifact of 
that era and we extracted uh, resources and exploited people mercilessly. Uh, Democracy 4.0 is going to have to be global to a great extent. Uh, it will vary from culture to culture. It's not going to be a, a copycat kind of thing. But the basic principle is uh, to allow people to have a say in how they're governed, by whom, and to what purpose. And so democracy 4.0 is in a process of invention. But having said that, I've got to say that all the pieces are there. You don't have to sort through many um, recent books or books written in the last 50 years that lay out uh, what has to be done. It would be a leap to get to 4.0. Our working assumption is that if we're going to manage the climate crisis in any humanly decent and ecologically solvent way, we have got to widen the constituency of people. In practical terms, I think this means several things right off the bat. It means all the reforms that John Lewis proposed and proposed for a long time. The, the franchise uh, right to vote has got to be guaranteed. It does not guarantee the Constitution. Gerrymandering, the right to vote in a, a fair electoral district has got to be uh, guaranteed. And it's hard to run a smart country with dumb people. So the constituency has got to be uh, educated. So the, the work ahead is hard. I think the good news is that uh, a good bit of the intellectual work has been done. It's now we're now down to organizing. And if you get the questions right and ask um, any number of people, I mean, even uh, people on the quote political right, you want to breathe dirty air? The answer is no. You want to drink dirty water? No. The answer uh, comes back to the same. Do you want to live in climate chaos? The answer is going to be no. Do you want your children to have a decent life on, on the planet? Uh, the answer is yes. So a good bit of the work has already been done. We've won a lot of the battles. Now it's an organizing battle. Uh, as Frederick Douglass once said, power never gives up, never has, never will. And so a good bit of the fight, uh, and it will be a fight, there will be casualties. Uh, the battle uh, will entail uh, overcoming the powers of money, fossil fuels, entrenched interests, and just the sense that this is what we do. This is the fight of our lives. This is the fight the younger generation, if they're looking for something to do, in Tom Barry's words, this is the great work ahead. You describe in the book our current situation as a long emergency. And yeah. I wanted to ask about that. Do you view democracy and its ability to endure in certain terms, or I guess phrased differently, how can democracy exist and even thrive in this long emergency? Well, that's a complicated answer. And I uh, let me say this with, with required humility. I don't know the answer. But I think that if I start with, first of all, the word long emergency, that's simply baked into the biophysical reality. Once carbon's in the atmosphere, it stays there for a long time. And we haven't seen the worst of global warming yet. We've just seen the opening chapter of the book. So the long emergency means that carbon will be in the atmosphere for a long time. This past summer has been a real primer in how the Earth works physically under uh, provocation. The buildup of greenhouse gases. I mean, we worry mostly about carbon dioxide, but if you add the other greenhouse gases that trap all heat trapping gases, we're really closer to 500 parts per million than we are to 422. This won't change quickly. Uh, 90 some percent of the heat generated has gone into the oceans. 
the amount of heat is staggering. Bill McKibben uh, had an article several years ago saying that the amount of heat released every day is roughly equivalent to four uh, Hiroshima-sized bombs going off every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week. All the combustion and the fires in our cars and uh, industrial processes uh, add uh, roughly calculation of that much heat. If he's wrong by one or two bombs, it's still a lot. So the long emergency is largely an artifact of what we've done to the planet. It'll take a long time for the planet to recoup and fall back to the level of when I was born. I think the carbon a million years ago, the carbon level was around 315 parts per million. That's the long emergency part. The everybody part in democracy, I think we have to begin to understand that governments can't solve all of this. I mean, it's a very right-wing notion. But I think governments are going to be overwhelmed with multiple disasters. If you imagine a scenario, which is not at all far-fetched, where you have a nuclear accident, a massive drought, three hurricanes hit, and a terrorist act all at one time, I don't think there's a government anywhere that could handle all of that. FEMA's not big enough. If you simply look at the, the things that we have to do to provision ourselves, food, energy, water, materials, healthcare, and all the rest, I think we have to tap into that ingenuity of the public. W.E.B. Du Bois, in a kind of a famous essay in 1919, spoke in those terms about uh, tapping into uh, the public ability to do things. People are smart, and given a cause and a reason to do something, they, they can do a lot of things. And what we have to uh, understand is how to calibrate the political needs and the public needs with that individual capacity. For example, in World War II, I think I got the number correctly. Americans grew something like 40% of their own vegetables in backyard gardens, victory gardens. And the ingenuity that resides at that public level to solve things. Rebecca Solnit's uh, book some years back, uh, Paradise Built in Hell, was about the uh, Katrina disaster and how people came out to help each other and for all the things that went wrong with that. I think we have to understand how to publicly build a channel for those things to occur, a platform for that to occur. The internet can help a lot by connecting people locally, but uh, this is a face-to-face thing as much as anything else. I think a part of what's what's fueled the right-wing distemper has been the fact we don't do things together much anymore. Uh, We sit and complain and argue with each other, but we don't do things much anymore. We don't uh, have what the Amish in this part of the world call barn raising, where everybody comes out to build a barn for somebody whose barn was burned down. It wouldn't be that simple, but uh, local food systems, uh, local farmers markets, uh, volunteers in schools, volunteer fire department, first responders, coming together builds a bond that we have to restore, but it's a face-to-face kind of bond. The long emergency is just baked into the, the way the earth works as a physical system. The democracy part is, I think, to begin to reinvent uh, what uh, John Dewey years ago described as local democracy. It begins at the grassroots and then moves up. It's not foreordained at the top and passed down. I happen to believe that people are mostly good. There are some exceptions that we all can name, but I think people are mostly good. Very few people wake up in the morning and say, I want to endanger another species or I want to add another degree to the climate. You know, we, we just go about our, our daily work. Part of the job of um, Educing or drawing forth goodness in us is partly by example, seeing good people do things, and partly by opportunity, and partly by those things of, of connectedness to, to people. 
anyway, that that uh, sounds like a sermon in a Presbyterian church. <laughs> so it's time to take up the offering. <laughs> Well, to bring it back to your book, one of the essays begins simply, the planet is burning, period. Another starts with burning hills and glowing red skies, stone dry riverbeds, expanses of brown water engulfing tiny human rooftops. This is the setting for the 21st century. There's a bluntness and a bleakness to some of these texts, but at the same time, there are all these solutions presented. And I like that you just alluded to or, or referenced uh, Rebecca Solnit's A Paradise Built in Hell, because that's really what that book is all about. Yeah. For you, what are some of the more compelling or realizable solutions that you yourself know about or that are presented in the book? I have to start with education because that's where I've, I've run up my, <laughs> my flag for a half century in, in the educational world. My dad was a uh, college president. So from the time I was five until uh, the current time, I've been in and around higher education. I don't see it as a panacea. It's one of those things that's a necessary but not sufficient change. But education has also been implicated in the crisis. We've done a lot of things that were short-sighted, as it turned out, and compromised uh, the human prospect. But I think education, and particularly the kind of education that engages uh, young people in actually doing things. So to supplement a college and university curriculum, years ago, or the last 25 years, I've participated in an educational program at Schumacher College in Devon, England. And it's just a great little two-week place where you get together and talk. You begin to connect with human beings, and you do things together and take walks together or work together. In between teaching at University of North Carolina and Oberlin, it took 11 years out to build an educational center where the, the goal was to connect head, hand, and heart. And it was just a lot of fun. Uh, every event we did there, uh, we had music. Uh, everybody did something physical, learned to do something or make something that they didn't know before they arrived. And so education can be a lot more proactive in calling out the better angels of our nature. And I think it's kind of the bedrock for all of this. If I had to make uh, going over to the political agenda, I think the most important thing is to get money out of politics. Uh, I don't think you can run. It's nothing new. This is, you know, Aristotle and Plato basically said the same thing. And I think that money in our society has created an oligarchy where the top you know, the wealthiest five people own more or wealthier than the bottom, whatever it is, 50% or 80% or whatever the percentages are. But that you can't keep a democracy going with that kind of economic imbalance. That's nothing new. I think in terms of politics, I, I think we just have to end the Electoral College. There was a reason for it back in James Madison's day. Uh, that reason's long gone. But uh, you can't have New York State or California with two senators in Wyoming with, uh, uh, you know, 300 people and 4 million cows with two senators. There's some hard political reforming that, that has got to be done. Going back a bit, it's now been more than three decades since you wrote your first book, Ecological Literacy, in 1992. How do you think about these past three decades and also just through an ecological perspective, like how does today's conversation around these matters compare to the one you were seeing in the early 90s? 
Boy, that, that's such an interesting question. Thanks for asking it. I'm That's the subject of uh, a book I'm working on right now that'll be probably two years in the making, but to revisit those years and some of those issues. One way to see this is that we won. All that ferment won. It, it won in a cultural sense that even hardcore, quote, conservatives support core principles that we fought over in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. In, in a second sense, a more, more ominous way, I think every problem that we thought we had or, or we know, knew we had in, the, uh, in those years has gotten worse, almost everything. And some new ones have come on. Artificial intelligence is another one. In the 1980s, uh, I invited Joe Weizenbaum, who was a, a computer scientist, refugee from Nazi Germany as a kid, came to the United States, taught at MIT, and was one of the great computer scientists of his day, helped to found the internet. We had him for a week on campus. He sat around and talked. He was a wonderful man. He had written a book called Computer Power and Human Reason 10 years before. Still in print, uh, still is a very good read. I think what, what's happened is that we've allowed this conversation about AI to get way too far without corrective action. Joe Weizenbaum said, we really don't need it and shouldn't do it. That came up in, in these long conversations we had over the course of that week. It's dangerous. He saw the dangers, but so did uh, Norbert Wiener, the great uh, MIT mathematician in 1948, uh, an article that the New York Times reprinted seven or eight years ago. He said, when these systems arrive at sentience, which eventually they will, self-awareness, we have no good reason to believe they'll be kindly disposed to us. That, those were his words. And so uh, you and I are carbon-based intelligence. You know, we've had stubbed toes and broken hearts and wandered at the night sky and had pet doggies and so forth. AI is uh, silicon intelligence, none of those things. It'll have never had experiences we've had as humans. And that's taken by some people that as uh, something good because it means it'll make decisions without emotion. But intelligence, raw intelligence without emotion is, is like a car with no, uh, no governor. There's nothing to direct all that, that energy and all that smartness. So to answer your question, I think some things have gotten better and I, I would not want to downplay that. If we decided to solarize the planet and, and fossil fuels globally, I think a determined effort could do that by the year 2050 or shortly thereafter. The technology is mostly there. The economic case for doing it is mostly there. The issues, the other issues of nuclear war and a, artificial intelligence are, are different issues. The horse left the barn a long time ago. I think that we need to rethink science and technology, these prosthetic devices that extend our capabilities and our hatreds and affections. That has yet to be done. Again, I, I, I despair a little bit about the way technology has gotten a free ride. There was a time Lewis Mumford and other people were critiquing that and it goes way back into Mary Shelley and before Mary Shelley, but there was a time when it was easier to critique these prosthetic devices, but they always arrive if benefits come first and then the fine print is read later. We mostly see what they do to us through the rearview mirror. What they're going to do for us is through the windshield. That's the prospect. I remain what Lauren Isley. <laughs> 
the anthropologist at the University of Pennsylvania once said, he's, he's a midnight optimist. He's late, but he's still alive. I'm getting off topic here, but I don't find the words optimist and pessimist very helpful. I think our language needs an overhaul. The word liberal and conservative, I don't think, say anything very important about what uh, what we actually believe. But optimism and pessimism are, um, I think, ought to be put aside. Let's just buckle down, do what we, we can, what's before us. and Everybody has something uh, to offer in this process. But I've uh, strayed, you've been very patient while I strayed off into the, <laughs> got far out on the limb. <laughs> Well, it's amazing to hear you speak in this way because I think it just shows how dynamic and interconnected all these things are. They're not simple. You can't talk about them in simple terms. It requires time and deep thought. I was curious, was there an aha moment for you or a moment as you were growing up where you knew that ecological matters would be your path in a way? Was there a particular event or, or thing that shifted for you? No, I don't think so. I wish there was a road to Damascus conversion. I guess it was a sudden light and a bolt and I had to aha, wow, <laughs> no such thing. I think the great passion is not so much, quote, ecological in a narrow scientific sense as the desire to connect or just a kind of a curiosity of what's related to what. Uh, my dad was both college president and a Presbyterian preacher. And uh, the root of the word religion means to bind together. And the root word of ecology, going back into the Greek uh, etymology, is much the same. It's the interrelatedness of these things. And so the interrelatedness of all of these issues, you just can't was it pull a thread without troubling the star, or somebody wants to put it better than that. I, I think that that is both uh, portentous and just damned interesting. The things that flourish intellectually, I think, uh, for the most part, are making those kind of connections. The same thing ought to pervade our thinking about the human future. How, how do we connect to all that ever was and all that ever will be and all that is right now? And I have traveled enough to know that it's hard to find, talk to anybody anywhere on the, on the planet that you don't share something in common and from whom you can't learn something. We're just all variations on theme. We're all human. To finish this conversation, what's giving you the most hope as you look forward? Do you sense that there is indeed a long overdue change happening? Uh, what makes you wake up in the morning with some sense of, you don't want to use the word optimism, so I'll use hope? <laughs> Well, I once to find in an article I wrote, uh, hope is a verb, but it's sleeves rolled up. And I think you get hope, and I think this certainly applies to me, by being engaged with people doing what work that needs to be done. And I, I'll tell you honestly, the, the best people I've known in life have been uh, people involved in this, quote, movement, whatever it is, but it's a movement about life. It's, it's, it's got you know kids' lunch programs and saving redwood forests and uh, swimming with dolphins, I mean, people who want to engage life and are passionately worried about its future but want to have this sense uh, taken care of it. So what, what gives me hope are the, the people, the colleagues around the world that are engaged in this work, and there are millions of, of us doing uh, the rescue work now going on in Morocco and, and uh, the fight in Ukraine. I mean, it, it's people, people are doing heroic things. Depression is kind of an indulgence at that point. And I think it's just smart. E.F. Schumacher, the great uh, British writer and economist, years back, ended the book by saying, if you 
ask the question, can humankind survive? And the answer comes back, no, then there's just depression and so forth. It comes back, yes, is eat, drink, and be merry. His advice was, don't even ask the question. Just get down to work. Do what you, you have to right in front of you. And stay close to each other. Build alliances and friendships and do all those things that we, we know to do. Uh, Robert Fulgham wrote a little, <laughs> a little book years ago called All I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And it's a charming little book. I suppose it's still in print, but he has things like uh, hold hands when you're crossing the street and share your cookies and clean up your messes. <laughs> I mean, all, all those things, you know, you teach little kids, but there, there are lessons in that that apply. Uh, you can scale those up to uh, the global scale. Don't leave messes behind and, and uh, you do hold hands if you're effective. But I think what we're aiming to do is just really interesting stuff. Are we going to make it? I mean, who could tell? But it, it's really interesting to understand how we take human purposes and meld it into national goals and purposes and how we stretch our hearts to reach out to other species and future generations. I mean, what could be more interesting than trying to do what we have never been very good at doing as humans? The last thing I'd say is this. I think there are lessons all around us. I mean, we have lessons from Ed Young's book on... Uh, how animals communicate. I mean, brilliant book. And the world is just much more complicated and interesting and interlocked than we ever thought. I don't know if that adds up giving me hope, but it always gives me an agenda <laughs> to do list when I wake up in the morning. Oh my God, it's six o'clock and I'm not up. <laughs> yeah, I've got stuff to do. <laughs> but I, I think the best people I've known are, are people in this movement. And uh, in your business, communicating is, is so incredible. Uh, begin to help uh, build this nervous system that wires us all together into common purpose and make sure that we we live up to our, our potential to be what we are or could be at our best. Lincoln's comment, angels of our better nature, I think, captured as well as it could be captured. But with malice uh, toward none and charity for all, including future generations and other species. And then I think the other side of this, I think if a movement works in this regard, we'll learn to party. And uh, party regularly and have fun in this. It can't be a bunch of uh, Presbyterian elders sitting around gloom and doom. And you know, anyway, not enough on that. But thanks, thanks for that question. Party on, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It was really great to sit down with you today, and appreciate you taking the time. Mister, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To join the Slowdown's new membership program, which provides access to subscriber-only newsletters, in-depth stories, immersive interviews, curated recommendations, and exclusive event invitations, go to slowdown.tv slash subscribe. That's slowdown.tv slash subscribe. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon.